0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read from verse 31 to verse 56. 31 to 56. Verse 31. Then Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Truly I say unto you, that this night, before the cock crow, you shall deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with you, yet will I not deny you. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he cometh unto the disciples and find them finds them asleep and says unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and said unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, He is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again your sword into your place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, "Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you in, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we draw our attention now away from uh, the many distractions of the of the world unto this most sublime episode in history and incident with your Son. We pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit and that you would give us the, uh, the ears to hear, Lord, the hearts to receive, the minds to understand. And Lord, we know that as we look at this passage, we are treading on holy ground, and we just pray that, Lord, you would uh, cause us to hear what it is that you want men to hear when they read about this incident. And we thank you for this time, Lord. We look to you for our strength in understanding. And we pray that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen all of you shall be offended because of me this night no exceptions all of you and each one of us brothers and sisters would have heard the exact same thing if we were with Jesus that night if instead of Bartholomew it was Yannick if instead of uh, you know Judas not Judas Iscariot it was Nathanael <laughs> All of us, without exception of anyone in this room, if we were in the disciples' shoes, would have heard Jesus look us in the face that night and said, this night you will be offended in me. I will become a stumbling block to you this night. Because the disciples at that night, and most of their time with Jesus, suffered what what is called Simon Peter syndrome. (laughs) Simon Peter syndrome. They all suffered from it. Simon Peter's syndrome is a common mental disorder. Basically, Simon Peter's syndrome goes like this. When Jesus says something to you, you just don't get it. <laughs> when Jesus says something to you, you just don't get it. Medically, it works like this. There's incoming information from Jesus. And it hits your mental grid. And it doesn't agree with your mental grid. And so that incoming information from Jesus bounces off your mental grid like a tennis ball off a brick wall. You ever seen a tennis ball bounce off a brick wall? Jesus sends the information, doesn't fit, bounces right off. That's Simon-Peter syndrome. And what's worse, when that happens, those who have Simon-Peter syndrome don't ask any questions. Like, hey, what was that? Or, why didn't that fit? They just assume that everything is okay. That they have the strong understanding, not the weak understanding. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example here of Simon Peter syndrome. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. And we'll see this happen. This exact phenomenon happen. Luke 9, 44. And notice the words of Jesus. Here comes the information from Jesus. Okay? Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Don't be a brick wall. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. That's what Jesus. That's the information. It comes to their mental grid. Verse 45. You can see their suffering. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they were afraid to ask him of that saying. There it is. And they all suffered from it. Now in in the Gospel of Mark, we have uh, Jesus saying to the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crucified, he's going to rise again on the third day, and he says this over and over and over again, and the disciples over and over and over again just suffer from (laughs) Simon Peter's syndrome. They don't get it. It doesn't seek in. And so going back to Matthew 26, Jesus once again tells them here, you shall be offended because of me this night. He tells them, as it is written, I'll smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And then he tells them about the resurrection. But after I am risen again, you know, he gives, he gives this beautiful, uh, foretells his resurrection to alleviate some of the gloom so that they might have hope. But after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. So once again, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed, they're going to get me, I'm going to rise. But the disciples don't get it. Look at what Peter says in verse 33. He flatly contradicts Jesus. Flatly contradicts. Jesus makes an explicit statement, and Peter says, Though all men shall be offended because of you, I will never be offended. Not me. Peter is sincere But in contradicting Jesus, he shows that he does not really know himself. Nor does he really know when to listen to Jesus. Jesus makes the statement, and he thinks he's better than that. And so also are many people today. God says many things, just like what Jesus said to the disciples. But when God speaks to men, even today, God says what our true condition is. And men don't listen, do they? Men say, no, that's not how it is. It might be true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. God says, all of you will betray me. All of you will uh, be offended because of me tonight. Simon Peter says, everyone else but not me. God says that there is no one righteous, not even one. Doesn't he? The declaration of God concerning man. There is none righteous, no, not one. But though everyone else may be unrighteous, not I, Lord. Not I. It's not true for me. God speaks to us the truth about who we are. He speaks to you the truth about who you are. The question is, are you suffering from Simon Peter syndrome, or are you listening? C.S. Lewis wrote once that no one knows how truly bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. It's easy to say you're a good person when there's, when there's no test. But actually try very hard to be good and you'll realize that what God has been saying all along was true. And so it was with Peter and the disciples on that night. They all said, No, we won't, betray, we won't be offended of you uh, tonight, Lord. And they all were one, once the moment came. Not only Peter says that he'll be different than everyone else, Jesus says that he'll fall different than everyone else in verse 34. Verse 34. Peter thinks he's better. Jesus says he'll fall the hardest because Jesus says to Peter in verse verse 34, Truly I say unto you that this night before the cock crow you shall deny me not once, not twice, three times in a very short space of time you'll have denied me. You'll have said you don't even know who I am. That's how great your falling away will be. In just a matter of hours this is what is going to happen with Peter. In verse 35, Peter again doesn't let that truth get into his head. It seems impossible to him and Peter himself presents the worst case scenario. Lord, even if I have to die for you, I won't. I will not be offended in you. I will not deny you. Notice Jesus doesn't say, yes you will. Because what would have Peter said? No I won't. Jesus yes you will, no I won't. <laughs> Jesus doesn't play games like that. Jesus said it once, and it will be as he said, period. That's it. It's a warning to us all to listen to God. God doesn't say to us, this is how it is, and we say, no it's not. He goes, yes it is, no it's not, yes it is, and it's back and forth. God speaks to us and says, this is how it is. And we can argue against it and say, no it isn't, or we can say, yes it is, but it will turn out as God has said in every case. So it's for us to learn from the apostles here and to listen to God. In verse 36, the company moves on. And the group arrives at what Matthew calls here a place called Gethsemane. A place called Gethsemane. The word means an oil press. So it was a place that obviously pressed olives. And the Gospel of John, we learn that it's a garden. It was a garden just east of the Kidron Valley. If you can picture Jerusalem in your mind, on the east side of Jerusalem, there's a valley called the Kidron Valley. And every time Jesus would leave Jerusalem to go to Bethany to to sleep, he'd have to pass through the Kidron Valley. And when you get on the other side of the Kidron Valley, you begin your ascent up the Mount of Olives. So the garden was on the east side of of the Kidron Valley, John tells us. So it would have been on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus, instead of continuing on, stops here. Jesus doesn't have the intention of going to uh, Bethany and going to Mary and Martha's house tonight. Jesus knows this night he's going to be taken by sinners, into the hands of sinners. And so Jesus goes to the place where he will be taken. And it says in verse 36 that he leaves eight of the disciples... And he takes three others with him to a more separate place. Sit here while I go and pray over there. And in verse 37, he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And it's interesting that Peter, James, and John, Jesus also took them onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't take all the disciples onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus also, you'll remember when, when Jairus, the synagogue ruler, came to him and said, my daughter is on her deathbed, come heal her. Uh, and then while they were going, she died. When they got to the house, Jesus said uh, for everyone to get out of the house, but he took with him Peter, James, and John into the house and healed Jairus' daughter, ro- raised her from the dead. So what we see here is that even within the, the 12 disciples that were around Jesus, there was also a closer circle of disciples that Jesus had, that Jesus would reveal himself uh, to in a deeper way. Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, uh, come apart with me. And in verse 37, we see something happen to Jesus that we've never seen before in any of the Gospels or any time in this story so far that Jesus begins to be deeply distressed and anguished, it says. And really, there's no words that can do justice to the emotion that Jesus is feeling right now. The, The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus... Was in agony. We've never seen Jesus like this before. What is going on with Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who, you know, all along he's faced all sorts of trials and all sorts of enemies and all sorts of opponents, and he's never been like this before. What is happening here? Jesus describes to John, Peter, and James in verse 38 what's happening. He says, My soul is is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. In the Greek, the word exceeding sorrowful literally means my soul is encircled and overwhelmed by grief. It's crushing him, essentially, from all sides. Sorrow and grief from all sides. Left, right, front, back, from the top, from the bottom. He's being crushed by sorrow. One translation puts it this way, my anguish, my anguish is so great that I feel as if I am dying. This is really a sublime thing for Jesus to be saying this. Because Jesus isn't like us. He's not just getting freaked out about stupid things, right? If Jesus is in anguish, there is certainly something to be in anguish about. And he asked them in verse 38, Stay here and watch with me. You remember the word "watch" literally means stay awake. And as we read this section, let's keep that in mind. That Jesus is essentially just asking them to stay awake. It's late. It's dark, and he wants them to stay awake with him. It says, "Stay awake with me." I remember when I was a kid, I uh, there was a period of my life for some reason where I I got uh, very afraid at night. At nighttime. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that when you are young, but when the darkness came and everyone went to sleep, I felt really lonely for some reason. It just one day, one day I never felt that way, and then one day I started feeling that way for several years. And uh, I never liked to be the only one awake in the house. Because, I don't, I don't know, as a young child, it was like when, once everyone else was asleep, they weren't conscious anymore, and I was the only one conscious. I felt like I was alone. And I, I think that Jesus here is re- requesting something similar to what I would have requested when I was a child. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted the sympathy of others. I wanted the company of others so that I would feel safer and not as lonely. And Jesus here in his humanity is asking the Son of God, God incarnate, is asking for a man to stay awake with him like a little child. Isn't that interesting? The God who created heavens and earth is asking Human beings, can you stay up with me? Can you stay up with me? And in verse 39, Matthew tells us that Jesus went a little farther off from them and he fell on his face and prayed. Now in many pictures of Jesus in the garden, what do you usually see? You see Jesus on his knees, right? Right? Maybe next to a rock or on his knees and he's looking up to heaven and praying like that, right? But Jesus was not on his knees, but the gospel tells us that Jesus was on his face. He was cast down completely to the ground. And we also know from the New Testament that Jesus was not praying quietly, nor was he praying silently. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7 The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was praying to God with loud cries and tears. So Jesus had a loud prayer going on and tears streaming down his face at this moment. We've never seen Jesus like this. What is going on with Jesus? And there's a charge against Jesus that people bring. And they say, this doesn't seem very heroic for someone that you call the Son of God. You say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect man. And yet, look, he's afraid of dying. He knows that they're going to come and get him, and he's freaking out. This is not heroic. Others have suffered more nobly than Jesus. And besides, he wasn't even on the cross that long. People have been crucified, and they've been on the cross a lot longer than him. He was only on the cross for a series of hours. Some Christians read the Garden of Gethsemane incident and they think, what is going on here? Does this mean that Jesus doesn't love me and that he doesn't want to die for me? Father, let the, pa- let the cup pass from me? Are we to learn from the Garden of Gethsemane that it's the Father who loves us and the Son who doesn't and the, Fa- and the Son is just doing the will of the Father? So what is going on here in the Garden? And the key to understanding Christ's distress is understanding the cup that he is requesting to have passed. In the prayer, verse 39, Jesus says, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the cup that he's in distress over. And so if you want to understand his distress, you have to understand what the cup is. As Christians, we need to know what the cup is. Let the cup pass from me. Now if we go throughout the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, we will see in the scriptures a figurative reference to a cup. Jesus is not talking about a physical cup in his hand that's tormenting him. right? Jesus is speaking figuratively. And if we go throughout the rest of the scriptures, we find a figurative meaning of a cup. And there's so many places in the the scriptures, we don't need to go to them all. You can look at them yourself and, and see this. But what the cup in scripture means, or what it signifies, is the portion or the lot that God gives to you in life. It's what's in the cup that's the focus. Every one of us, in a sense, has a cup. And God, in his wisdom, and in his sovereignty, and in his providence, pours into your cup your lot, your portion, where you're born, When you're born, who your family is, whether you'll graduate or not, what's going to happen to you, whether this incident happens, whether you get in a car accident, whether you get a blessing, whether you get a curse. Because throughout Scripture, what could be put into your cup or what could be put into your portion could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. What do you think it is here, a good thing or a bad thing? Jesus is saying, let the cup pass from me. The portion that you are giving me, let it pass Do you think he's asking for a good thing to pass or for a bad thing to pass? He's asking for a bad thing to pass. Clearly Jesus is fearing the things that are about to happen to him. The sufferings that are foretold in the prophets that are his portion in life. The reason that he came into the world was for this. But as Jesus is now at the precipice of his sufferings, He's asking, Lord, if it's possible, let my portion pass from me. Now we might think, what is going on here? That doesn't seem heroic. That doesn't seem like Jesus. In, ver- in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the author of Hebrews tells us that he was praying to be saved from death. In Mark chapter 14, verse 35, Mark records Jesus as saying this if it is possible in his prayer, let the hour pass. From me, His hour is then substituted for his cup. Of course, his hour, we know, is the purpose for which he came into the world, his sufferings and his death. The hour that he came into the world, which as we read through the Gospels, it says, My hour had not come. It says many times in Scripture that they sought to lay hands on Jesus. They sought to take him and kill him. But his hour had not yet come. But now that the hour has come... Jesus is praying this prayer. Some people think that the cup is what Jesus is drinking at that moment, then and there in the garden. They think that he's drinking the cup and as he's between swallows asking, take the cup away from me. But that's not the meaning of scripture. The hour is at hand. If you look at Matthew 26, verse 45, when the the betrayers come to arrest Jesus he wakes up his disciples and says, Behold, the hour is at hand. The hour that he was praying about has not happened yet, but it's just about to happen. Or in the Gospel of John, when Peter strikes off the ear of the servant's priest, he says, Put the sword up into your place, Peter. Am I not supposed to drink the cup that God has given to me? Why are you trying to stop me from drinking the cup? So the cup and the hour is about to come. And he's not saying that he's drinking it now. So why is he afraid? Why is Jesus not being heroic? The understanding is to know what was exactly in the cup. And brothers and sisters, what we know was in the cup, that Jesus knew, that if we read the Garden of Gethsemane account without this understanding, we'll never understand, that God had poured into the cup for Jesus death and the death for our sins, and death as only God and Jesus truly know it. Because death to God and Christ is not merely physical suffering like so many people today think. They think, I'm going to die. It has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with judgment. It has nothing to do with wrath. It's just a physical phenomenon. Jesus wasn't thinking that was in his cup. Oh Lord, take away the physical, natural ramifications of life from me. That's not what Jesus is praying. Because this death in the cup of Jesus was not merely physical sufferings, nor was it merely spiritual sufferings. But it was physical sufferings and death with its full spiritual meaning that Jesus and God understood. That Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world and bear our sins and bear the punishment that we deserve and bear the displeasure and the wrath of God with a complete and full understanding, and to a complete and full measure. Charles Erdman writes this, That scene in the garden can be interpreted only by the words spoken in the upper room. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many unto the remission of sins. It is this agony which adds to the mystery and the meaning of the cross. J.C. Ryle writes, The real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world, which seems to have now pressed down upon him with peculiar force. It was the burden of our guilt imputed to him, which was now laid on him as on the head of a scapegoat. How great that burden must have been, no heart of man can conceive. It is only known to God. Well may the Greek litany speak of the, quote, unknown sufferings of Christ. There are sufferings that Christ partook of that we will never truly understand. Isaac Watts writes this in a hymn. All the unknown joys he gives were bought with agonies unknown. Remember back in verse 31? Who is the one who is putting Jesus to death? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jews? In verse 31, all of you shall be offended of me... This night, for it is written, God is speaking, I will smite the shepherd. God is the one who's about to smite Christ. And Christ is fully aware of this. He's not afraid of the Jews. He's not afraid of the Romans. It's God that's making him tremble. When Jesus was given over into enemy hands, that was God beginning to smite Christ. You remember in the law of Moses that when Israel sinned against God, one of the curses would be that I would give you in to your the hands of your enemies. Now you might have many enemies, but if you are righteous, I will not allow any of those enemies to hurt you. And if I give you into those enemies' hands, it's not because the enemies are righteous. It's because I'm punishing you for your sins. And we see in the life of Jesus that every time the enemies wanted to take him, it said his hour had not come. No one could touch Jesus. No one could lay a finger on him. He could throw himself off the temple, Satan tempted him. And he wouldn't even bump his foot against a rock because the angels would uphold him. But now Jesus, as we read, when Judas and the group lays their hands on him, that's no insignificant moment. That's the moment when God delivers his son over into the hands of his enemies to be beaten and to be mocked and to build. But let's note and remember that it is God who is smiting Christ. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul tells us that he was delivered up for our offenses. Is at this moment where God delivers Christ over for our offenses to be the sacrifice for our sins. And in verse 39, when Jesus says, Let the cup pass from me, Father, We're not to understand this, that he doesn't want to save you. We're not to understand this, that he doesn't love you. That his will is opposed to God's will. That God wants them to do something that he doesn't want to do. I don't care about them. I don't want to save them. We're not supposed to understand Jesus' words that way. What we're supposed to understand is that Jesus is simply asking, is there another way for them to be saved? But if there isn't, I'm willing to die for them because I love them like you love them, Father. Is there any other way? Jesus wanted God's will to be done. This is all about the the manner, or the method, or the way of salvation. Facing what he was about to face, Jesus is simply asking the question that blesses the rest of the world by showing us that there is no other way. The fact that Jesus praised this prayer shows us once and for all the answer that brothers and sisters and let the whole world hear it. There is no other way to be saved but the horrible death of Christ and the smiting of the Son by the Father. There's no other way for a sinner to be saved. There's no other way for you to be saved. If there was another way, God would have done it another way. But there is no other way. And so Jesus, understanding that there was no other way but for him to face this horrible death, chose that horrible death for you. Not my will, but yours be done. There's no conflict of will between the Son and the Father in that statement. But simply, like anyone... Uh, None of us want to suffer. But Jesus wants the will of God, which is the salvation of men, to be done. And so he's willing to face the suffering that he doesn't want in order to save us. Christ's agony in Gethsemane does not prove that he was a coward, nor that he doesn't love us, but the exact opposite. Christ's agony in Gethsemane proves the reality, the fierce and frightening reality of the wrath of God that even made the Son of God tremble. But it proves the courage of Christ to take that cup for us and the passionate, heroic love of God for sinners. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane proves. In fact, if Jesus had just faced it in a stride, we might wonder how heroic the love of God really was. Really is, or how fearful the wrath of God really is. If there was no need for propitiation, if God could forgive sinners without propitiation, without the death of Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, then true indeed Jesus would be a coward. Because if God is not the kind of God who requires a sacrifice, then what's Jesus trembling about? The only explanation for the Garden of Gethsemane. And the distress of Christ is the fact that Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins. The garden is the great testimony to that. Hymn writer Joseph Hart in 1759 wrote this, View him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. Think about that. Take a look now, brothers and sisters, to Christ, who is this man? The Son of God, the creator of the world. God made flesh, laying on his face in the garden for you. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Will it not suffice to show you the ways of God? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Doesn't this suffice to teach you about the reality of wrath and love? Ambrose in the 4th century said this, I not only do not think that there is any need of excuse for Jesus' behavior here, but there is no instance in which I admire more his kindness and his majesty. Moving on in verse 40 and 41, all this amazing stuff is going on. Jesus is facing the reality of of wrath and sin and propitiation and love. And the disciples are totally clueless. The disciples are sleeping. And Jesus comes to them and he sees Peter, James and John, his inner circle, sleeping. And he says to Peter, What, the resolute one? What, the one that's different than them all? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? I asked you to stay up with me. And then Jesus says to them again, Watch and pray, literally stay awake stay awake and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. What is the temptation that he's warning them about? Well, it's not the temptation to fall back to sleep. Jesus is not saying pray so that you don't fall asleep. Sometimes prayer puts us to sleep. Close your eyes and you know. Jesus is not saying that the temptation is to fall asleep but the temptation is what they're about to face in just a moment when the band comes. See, the disciples are wanting to love Christ, serve Christ, follow Christ to the end, but their human strength is weak. Jesus asked them to stay awake with him and they fall asleep. Peter says, I will not deny you, but he denies Christ three times and all the disciples run away. As we, will, as we see now, they're falling asleep and as we're going to see they are going to run away. Their spirit is willing They want to serve him. But their human strength, which is what flesh means, is weak. And this saying, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, is not an excuse, as some people think. Some people think we as human beings can use that as an excuse. Kind of like when we sin, we say, a lot of people say, I'm only human. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. It's an excuse. It's not an excuse. It is an exhortation to pray according to Jesus. Because human strength is weak, Pray. Draw your strength from God. Be dependent on Him. There's no excuse there, but a reason to pray. And we learn from Jesus at this time in His agony that prayer is our great help in time of need. Not only from the words Jesus speaks right right here, but by His actual praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in His time of need. We draw our strength from God We look to Him. It's an attitude of dependence. Uphold me, the psalmist says, and I will stand. Prayerlessness is an attitude of self-sufficiency. I don't need to pray tonight. I can just go to sleep. I will not deny you, Lord. I won't deny Him when the time comes. I'm just going to go to sleep right now. Rather than having a prayerful attitude toward God. In verse 42, Jesus goes again to pray, only this time his prayer is slightly different. If this cup cannot pass away from me, except I drink it, your will be done. Jesus knows that he needs to drink it now. Your will be done. Notice in this section, the echoes of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught men to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice the similarities between this now and the Lord's Prayer. We have our Father and Jesus praying to the Father, your will be done, and lead us not into temptation. I would say these are the three main elements of the Lord's Prayer. First of all, when you pray, the most important thing about prayer is Is knowing who you're praying to. That when we pray, we're not praying to some unknown God out there. To the unknown God, whoever you are out there, if you can hear me, please help me. That's not how we pray. The most important thing about prayer and the most important element of our prayer is our recognition as to who we're praying to, and it's our Father. The word Father fills our understanding of God with meaning, it's not just the Creator. It's not just the unknown, strong one. It's the Father who loves me. The Father who cares about me. The Father who I can go to and pray to without using many words and repetitions because he hears me and he loves me. And when Jesus is praying in the garden, he says, oh Father, it's full of that understanding. Jesus knows the Father is good and that the Father loves him. And secondly, for that reason, we know that the will of the Father is good. And so our prayers should also have the foundation or the note or the tenor of submission to His will. Your will be done. And we can pray with confidence. Your will be done. Because we know that He is good. Because we know that He is our Father. Amen? If you don't know God is good, your will be done could be a scary prayer. But if you know he's good, and Jesus knew here in this moment that this, the prospect of suffering, not just physical death, but death and the wrath of God is not pleasant. But I know that God is good. Your will be done. And the last element of the Lord's Prayer, besides recognition of the Father and having submission to the will of God, which we know is good, is petition. And petition obviously changes From circumstance to circumstance, Jesus is not praying for food at this moment. And the disciples need to pray, lead us not into temptation. Meaning, God uphold me or else I won't be held up. If temptation comes, my human strength is weak. I understand what you say about me is true. That I am weak. That I'm sinful. And I need you to keep me from evil. Jesus, this night, was receiving strength from God in his prayer. The disciples weren't. The disciples were not, because they were sleeping. And so when the betrayers came, we know what happened. Jesus, having been strengthened by God, stands before his enemies, before his betrayer, before this crowd that's come to take him with courage and strength. But the disciples, on the other hand, flee in confusion and in fear. In verse 45, Jesus wakes them up, ironically. Sleep on now and take your rest. Now the time has come. A.T. Robertson writes this about the failure of the disciples. They have missed their chance for sympathy with Jesus. The one night where Jesus was in need of them. Not ultimately, of course, but he wanted their help. They didn't come through. H.A. Kent said their opportunity to be useful in the crisis, the most important crisis of all, had passed. What follows now, starting here to the end of the crucifixion, is what I like to call God in the hands of angry sinners. Look at verse 45. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into what? the hands of sinners they're going to do with him what they want what they desire to do to destroy him the passion of christ as i've said is the demonstration of the sinfulness of man in his hatred against god and against truth god is now being placed into the hands of angry sinners who hate truth and for that reason hate god So we get to watch what they do to him as we go on. But Jesus in verse 46 says, Rise, let us be going. It's been said by many commentators that in the Greek it sounds like a general giving orders to an army. Let's go face them, not rise, let's flee, let's get out of here quick. Here they come. Let's go out to meet them. And Jesus, as a champion, goes out to meet them. Who is this group that comes? Some people imagine it was full of Roman Roman soldiers, but that's not true. There was no Roman soldiers here this night. It was Judas leading a group of temple guards. And we also learn from Luke that there were chief priests, leaders, and the servants of the leaders who were there as well. These aren't just a bunch of soldiers, but also the leadership of Israel comes out to arrest Jesus. Judas had given them a sign before. There's probably many of them who had not ever seen Jesus before. Jesus said, the one that I kiss is the one that you are to take hold of. It's very interesting that in the Greek, in verse 49, when Jesus, when Judas approaches G, G, uh, Jesus and he says, Hail Master, it says he kisses him. The Greek word doesn't mean that he just came up and kind of a little pecked him on the cheek. Okay, He didn't just come and give him a little... Uh, timid kiss but it was a passionate earnest kiss it's the same word that was used of the woman who kissed Jesus' feet and the prodigal son's father when the prodigal son comes home and the father runs and falls on his neck and kisses him there's a, a show here of love towards Jesus it's ostentatious Judas comes up and embraces Jesus and kisses him passionately The only two places in Scripture where Jesus is kissed is when the woman kisses Jesus and when Judas kisses Jesus. And what a contrast there is between those two kisses. There really is only in life two responses to Jesus. Those who know Jesus love him. And you can relate to the woman. And you can say, when I see Jesus, I just want to kiss him. If I I can kiss him, I'm going to. And I'm not going to be a little timid, peck on the cheek. (laughs) And then there are those who hate Jesus, even though they give a show of love for him. You either love him or you hate him, because you either love truth or you hate truth. Jesus calls Judas friend. And... We are to not ever think that Jesus is using words in a shallow way or that it's just social courtesy. But Jesus calls Judas his friend because that is what Judas is to him. From Jesus' perspective, he loves Judas. Jesus loves his enemies. And this is the one whom Judas has sinned against. This is the one whom the chief priests have sinned against. This is what God is like. This is the God that we sin against. We sin against God who loves us and wants our good. We're not just sinning against someone who hates us or is indifferent toward us. Which makes our sin all the worse. Which makes the wrath of God all the more severe. And the sacrifice of Christ all the more amazing. When they laid hands on Jesus, it was the climactic moment in history. The moment when God, as I've said, delivered Christ into the hands of the enemies. And Peter realizes that this is a climactic moment. doesn't tell us it's Peter in verse 51, but the other Gospels tell us it was Peter. Peter realizes what a supremely significant moment it is that the one who is the Messiah is all of a sudden grabbed by men. And Peter says, no, no, no. This is not going to happen. This is not going down tonight. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And he pulls out his sword and strikes, knocking the ear off one of the chief priest's servants. Feudal attempt to stop not only just a crowd of men with swords and staves, what's Peter going to do? But to thwart the purposes of God Jesus rebukes Peter with strong disapproval. Put up your sword in your place. And Jesus says in verse 53, Don't you think that I cannot now pray to my Father? And notice how effective Jesus' prayers are. When he's praying, Oh my Father, let this cup pass from me. If it was possible for that cup to pass from him, it would have passed. Jesus says, I could pray right now and the angels in heaven would come and deliver me. Don't you think that I could pray and every one of us could have our own legion of angels? One for the eleven and one for me. Twelve legions of angels could come and deliver us. And more than that, he says, even more than twelve legions of angels. There's an unlimited resource from heaven that I have. And I don't need your help, Peter. And this isn't about what what you think. Jesus didn't need anyone's help. He could have stopped it all at any time, but he was willing to give himself into the hands of his enemies for our sakes, because this was the purpose of God. Verse verse 53 and 54 basically are this. Jesus is saying, if I protect myself, how can the scriptures be fulfilled? How can mankind be saved? If I say, you know what, line of least resistance here. I don't want to be taken by them. Angels come, stop it all. How then can God be true and can man be saved? Reflect upon this for ourselves as well. In our own relationships, if we protect ourselves, how then can our relationships be healed? If we always took the way of least resistance, And how many of you are guilty of that? Or how many of you feel that strong temptation to just always stop pain? (laughs) Doing the right thing hurts. But if we always protect ourselves, if we always just seek to stop pain, instead of doing truth, how then can we offer this world healing? How then can we bring into our own families and relationships life? We learn from Jesus that the way of life is the way of truth and not the way of selfishness. Verse 55 Jesus protests their behavior and he exposes them all as evildoers. You didn't come to arrest a a bad person. You guys think you're all righteous coming to stop the bad guy. But that's not the truth. The truth is you're all unrighteous and you're all evil and you hate someone who tells you the truth. He says, are you come out as against a robber, which is the Greek word, not thief. There's actually a difference between thief and robber if you look at it up in the English dictionary. A thief is someone who just steals things, but a robber is someone specifically who steals by means of violence. And so that's why he says, Are you come against a robber, a violent man with swords and staves to take me? If what I'm doing is so bad, why didn't you stop me publicly? If I'm such an evildoer, why didn't you come get me when I was in the temple teaching? I must not be bad enough, I guess. I'm not really a criminal, am I? I'm not a robber, I'm not violent. It's you guys who are in sin. And in verse 56, finally, Jesus is abandoned by all of his disciples and the only thing that he has left to draw comfort from is the scriptures. He must drink the cup alone. The disciples scatter as he said. When the shepherd is smitten, when the disciples realize, oh my goodness, God just gave the Messiah up, they're confused and they run. And Jesus' only comfort now is is the scriptures of truth. The disciples were willing to struggle and die with Jesus, but they were not prepared to surrender with him. If Jesus had uh, grabbed a sword and started fighting, I'm sure all the disciples would have started fighting too. But when Jesus surrendered, healed the guy's ear, said, put the sword away, they ran. They couldn't see the purpose of his death. As Artie France wrote, their failure was due not merely to fear of their personal safety, but to inability to grasp the purpose of Jesus' suffering. They didn't understand why he had to die. And so they would not have been able to have suffered with him. It's the same that is true for us today. If we don't truly understand the death of Christ, if we don't really understand righteousness through faith, and we don't understand what suffering with Christ is all about, then we also will not be able to stand when suffering comes to us And we realize that God isn't telling us to fight back. And we'll be confused too if we don't have hope and understanding of the purposes of God. In closing, brothers and sisters, we see that there are many lessons to be learned from the Garden of Gethsemane. God, when he speaks, his word prevails. When he says you'll betray him, you'll betray him. When he says you'll deny me, you'll deny me. Even if it seems impossible. When he says that you are weak, you're weak. When he says that you are not righteous, guess what? You're not righteous. If you were there that night, you would have been offended as he said. But you are here. And God says, there is no one righteous. We learn from the Garden of Gethsemane that there is no other way for sinners to be saved. When Jesus asked the Father if there was another way, the answer came back in the negative. It was silence. There was no other way, and so Jesus bravely took the cup for our sake. And this shows us the amazing love of Christ for us. These truths come to all men and it hits their grids. And the grid either changes, okay, my grid doesn't fit with what God is saying here. And we either say, okay, that means I'm wrong I'm not the one who's got the the strength of mind. I've got the weakness of mind. God is the one who's speaking the truth and so therefore I'm going to change what I think and I'm going to believe God or as many people do, no God, send your word away. What I think is true and the mind hardens against the truth. Peter in the end changed his mind and he later would see Christ raised from the dead. Judas did not change his mind. And many people do not change their mind. Do you suffer from Simon Peter syndrome? When God speaks his truth to you and it comes to your mind and it hits your grid and it doesn't make sense, does it bounce off your head like a brick wall? Do you ask questions and think, why is this not fitting? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should learn a lesson and know that God's word is always true. And what we learn most of all is that God loves us so much. And this morning, I want you to see that in this incident at the Garden of Gethsemane. That God loves you and that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to face the horrible, frightening death that he faced. Not just physical, but the bearing of our sins and the bearing of the wrath of God on our behalf. It's all manifested here in this sublime sublime incident and in the rest of the passion of Christ this is the proof of God's incomprehensible love for you will you believe him trust in him will you suffer with him serve him let us pray to God to uphold us and to give us strength because apart from him how can we believe these things how can we serve him how can we suffer with him how can we trust him how can we know him unless we start listening to Him and finding in Him everything that we need. Let's pray. Lord, no words can do justice at all to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's too deep and sublime for us to wrap our minds around. I pray, Lord, that we would ponder it much. We would think about it and meditate on the fact that you did not die for us in strides, but your death was truly a frightening thing and that that shows your terrifying wrath and your amazing love for us. Help us to meditate on what it cost for us to be saved and that there was no other way. Give us always strength to be thankful and to not be led into temptation to think that we're strong. Thank you that you are our Father and that we can trust in you for whatever comes our way. Lord, give us a deeper and deeper understanding of these things, I pray. We praise you, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.